Chapter Four of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter Four: The Quadroon's Home. How sweetly on the hillside sleeps the sunlight with its quickening rays! The verdant trees that crown the steeps grow greener in its quivering blaze. About three miles from Richmond is a pleasant plain, with here and there a beautiful cottage surrounded by trees so as scarcely to be seen. Among them was one far retired from the public roads and almost hidden among the trees. It was a perfect model of rural beauty. The piazzas that surrounded it were covered with clematis and passion flower. The pride of China mixed its oriental-looking foliage with the majestic magnolia, and the air was redolent with the fragrance of flowers, peeping out of every nook and nodding upon you with a most unexpected welcome. The tasteful hand of art had not learned to imitate the lavish beauty and harmonious disorder of nature, but they lived together in loving amity and spoke in accordant tones. The gateway rose in a gothic arch, with graceful tracery and ironwork, surmounted by a cross, round which fluttered and played the mountain fringe, that lightest and most fragile of vines. This cottage was hired by Horatio Green for Clotel, and the quadroon girl soon found herself in a new home. The tenderness of Clotel's conscience, together with the care her mother had with her, and the high value she placed upon virtue, required an outward marriage, though she well knew that a union with her prescribed race was unrecognized by law, and therefore the ceremony would give her no legal hold on Horatio's constancy. But her high poetic nature regarded reality rather than the semblance of things. And when he playfully asked how she could keep him if he wished to run away, she replied, If the mutual love we have for each other and the dictates of your own conscience do not cause you to remain my husband, and your affections fall from me, I would not, if I could, hold you by a single fetter. It was indeed a marriage sanctioned by heaven, although unrecognized on earth. There the young couple lived, secluded from the world, and passed their time as happily as circumstances would permit. It was Clotel's wish that Horatio should purchase her mother and sister, but the young man pleaded that he was unable, owing to the fact that he had not come into possession of his share of the property. Yet he promised that when he did, he would seek them out and purchase them. Their first-born was named Mary, and her complexion was still lighter than her mother. Indeed, she was not darker than other white children. As the child grew older, it more and more resembled its mother. The iris of her large dark eye had the melting mesotints, which remains the last vestige of African ancestry, and gives that plaintive expression, so often observed and so appropriate to that docile and injured race. Clotel was still happier after the birth of her child, for Horatio, as might have been expected, was often absent day and night with his friends in the city, and the edicts of society had built up a wall of separation between the quadroon and them. Happy as Clotel was in Horatio's love, and surrounded by an outward environment of beauty, so well adapted to her poetic spirit, she felt these incidents with inexpressible pain. For herself she cared but little, for she had found a sheltered home in Horatio's heart, which the world might ridicule, but had no power to profane. But when she looked at her beloved Mary, and reflected upon the unavoidable and dangerous position which the tyranny of society had awarded her, her soul was filled with anguish. The rare loveliness of the child increased daily, 
and was evidently ripening into most marvellous beauty. The father seemed to rejoice in it with unmingled pride, but in the deep tenderness of the mother's eye there was an indwelling sadness that spoke of anxious thoughts and fearful foreboding. Clotel now urged Horatio to remove to France or England, where both her and her child would be free, and where color was not a crime. This request excited but little opposition, and was so attractive to his imagination that he might have overcome all intervening obstacles, had not a change come over the spirit of his dreams. He still loved Clotel, but he was now becoming engaged in political and other affairs which kept him oftener and longer from the young mother, and ambition to become a statesman was slowly gaining the ascendancy over him. Among those on whom Horatio's political success most depended was a very popular and wealthy man who had an only daughter. His visits to the house were at first purely of a political nature, but the young lady was pleasing, and he fancied he discovered in her a sort of timid preference for himself. This excited his vanity, and awakened thoughts of the great worldly advantages connected with a union. Reminiscences of his first love kept these vague ideas in check for several months, for with it was associated the idea of restraint. Moreover, Gertrude, though inferior in beauty, was yet a pretty contrast to her rival. Her light hair fell in silken ringlets down her shoulders, her blue eyes were gentle, though inexpressive, and her healthy cheeks were like opening rosebuds. He had already become accustomed to the dangerous experiment of resisting his own inward convictions. And this new impulse to ambition, combined with the strong temptation of variety and love, met the ardent young man, weakened in moral principle, and unfettered by laws of the land. The change wrought upon him was soon noticed by Clotel. End of chapter 4